You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. For October 13th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Most observers of electricity markets are well aware that adapting them to the new kinds of technologies and policies needed for the energy transition is an ongoing project with no simple answers. And over the past five years or so, we've seen numerous attempts to make piecemeal adjustments to the way that electricity markets work in order to make them more friendly to renewables, demand-side technologies, distributed energy resources, or DERs, storage technologies, and more. And we have covered various aspects of those attempts in episodes 24, 41, 43, 60, 64, 70, 90, 94, 97, 105, 134, and 150. And we have offered an introduction to electricity markets in episodes 126 and 128, which are part of our Energy Basics mini-series. Listeners who are new to the topic of electricity markets may want to listen to some of those previous episodes to help them get up to speed on the topic before diving into today's discussion, because this is a very technical discussion about the various attributes of electricity contracts and how we might want to reform electricity markets so that they work better as we proceed through the energy transition. There are no clear or simple answers to these questions, and indeed, even if there were, it would be hard to implement them, simply because there are so many different market designs in operation already that will have to find ways to accommodate these reforms. But we can at least start by thinking about these questions in a somewhat abstract way in order to understand the nature of the questions and the various ways that they can be answered. Picking up on some work that he presented earlier this year and a subsequent conversation about it on Twitter, I asked Eric Gimon if he'd be willing to return to the show and share some of his thoughts on this topic, because he is among the very few I have found who has really thought about it in a deep way. Longtime listeners will remember Eric from his previous appearances on the show in episodes 20 and 64. An active researcher and a policy advisor on energy transition in the power sector, Eric has previously researched quantum gravity and high-energy physics and worked at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, UC Berkeley, and the Department of Energy. He is currently a senior fellow with Energy Innovation, an energy and environmental consulting NGO, where he continues to research and write about everything from residential energy management systems to large grids and wholesale electricity markets. So it's a great privilege and a pleasure to have him back on the show to share his conceptual framework for how electricity markets can function in the energy transition and how those concepts can be applied to the markets we have today. We start by addressing the zombie theory of value deflation in solar, but we end up in a very heady conceptual space well-deserving of the geek rating of 10 that I have assigned to this conversation. I know our electricity market geeks are going to love this one. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll recap the damage that Hurricane Ida did in Louisiana and Mississippi and consider the implications for New Orleans utility energy. We'll check out some of the highlights from a landmark new energy law passed in Illinois. We'll note new efforts to stimulate finance for renewable energy in India. We'll consider the chutzpah of five fossil fuel companies suing Western governments over the losses they're incurring due to energy transition. And we'll have a look at some new alternative fuel ships designed to decarbonize international shipping. 
listening. And before we go to the interview, let me offer these quick reminders for our annual subscribers to help them take full advantage of the value of their subscriptions. Check out our new job board, which is free for you to use, and use the three free share links we give you each year to share our show with a friend or colleague. You can find those on the Managed Subscription page on our website. And for those of you who haven't yet joined our supporters, remember that we offer half-priced annual subscriptions to students, as well as graduated discounts for groups, academic institutions, corporations, and other organizations. You can find all of our subscription options and discounts by clicking on the Become a Member button on our website. And now, our conversation with Eric Jumon, recorded September 15th, 2021. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Eric, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Yeah, it's been an awfully long time since we had you on the show, and I've many times thought, geez, I would love to get Eric on about this, and I just failed to do it, so I'm glad we could finally get back together. You know, in our previous episode, the one right before this, Jonathan Kumi and I talked about why the zombie theory of value deflation for solar was wrong. And for those who aren't familiar with the theory, it asserts that as more wind and solar are developed, it will have a deflationary effect on electricity prices because their marginal costs are effectively zero. And that eventually this will drive electricity prices so low that wind and solar developers just can't make any money. So the theory goes, either deployment of wind and solar would grind to a halt or they would need some sort of technological breakthrough in order to outrun their own declining cost curves effectively. Now, I don't think we need to repeat the reasons why we think that theory is wrong. John and I covered that pretty well in episode 156. But I would like to offer our listeners something more helpful, some thoughts about how electricity markets might need to be designed for the energy transition so that they can continue to integrate a growing share of renewables, even as their costs keep falling. And you've done quite a bit of thinking about that, which you shared in part in a December 2020 webinar hosted by the World Resources Institute and Resources for the Future, which I've linked to in the show notes. So I think I'd like to start with those ideas and then... Once we've laid that groundwork, see how we might be able to expand on them to contemplate some of the other ways that we think power markets will need to evolve to accommodate things like expanded roles for DERs and microgrids and some of the other issues we've discussed recently on the show. So in your December 2020 presentation, you offered a view of power markets that you call the energy cascade. Why don't you share that with our listeners to get us started? Oh, thank you, Chris. Before I do that, I think to give you a little motivation for why I started thinking about these things, ever since I got involved in the modeling of high variable energy systems when I was at DOE some 12, 13 years ago, you know, I've been kind of fascinated with this idea. Like, If the model is telling you that you can put these resources together to make an economically viable system that meets the needs of consumers, why does the economic model, the pricing model, not seem to work? Where is the disconnect? And it slowly dawned on me over time that a lot of the disconnect in people's minds and kind of you know following this zombie theory idea is that people think too much about the short-term market, the real-time market. What is the price of electricity at a given five-minute interval or hour interval and so on, which is set in terms of the marginal cost of electricity in that moment. So where people really get going on these zombie theories is like, well, the marginal cost is zero, and so these resources are dominating, therefore, this market can't work because the price is going to be zero all the time, then really high the rest of the time. Right. Now, the thing is that people don't finance resources 
directly from the real-time market. That would be a crazy man thing to do. People enter contracts, and they have counterparties on contracts, and so people interact with the market at a distance through long-term instruments. And so it led me to this idea of power markets as not just what's happening in the real-time market or day-ahead market, but really the whole sequence of economic activity and transactions that precedes that. Mm. And each activity in this sequence affects the next. So if you think about real-time, you have to think about day-ahead markets. If you think about day-ahead markets, you need to think about monthly futures mm -hmm. and the trading activity going on in monthly futures. And then there's year-ahead commitments. And then you get further and further up to long-term markets where you have PPAs or hedges and so on that are really contracts that span a large number of years, 10 to 25 years. And each of these markets kind of depends on the other. And if you want to have the proper context for thinking about the impact of zero marginal cost resources on markets, you have to think about that whole cascade. That's a great insight and something that I don't think has really been mentioned enough. So how does this energy cascade, these different kinds of markets, work together? And what are some of the principles about how that should work? Well, one way to understand this is maybe in terms of something like the Lunar Lander game. So if you go to like a space museum or if you're just old like the two of us and you played this when you were a kid, there are these games where you're supposed to be Neil Armstrong and you're landing the lunar lander on some surface. And you've got the camera from the lander looking down at the surface of the moon and you've got an indicator how fast you're going and your inclination. And every once in a while you do a little nudge of the rocket or you turn the lander until eventually you land the lander without crashing. And moving from kind of when you first invest as a generator or you participate as the load all the way to the real-time moment, there are a number of activities that correspond to kind of adjusting these little rockets or making attitude adjustments. And the way you do that is through these markets. So you have a rough sense of your need 10 years out, maybe a couple years closer, you realize you've lost some customers, you gain some customers, you adjust, you get into the actual year, you have a better understanding of how your wind and solar might perform and, and what you might be missing or not missing, you adjust again and you keep adjusting. And at the end of the day, you land the lander, you meet supply and demand in real time and everybody's happy, theoretically. Now, what makes that work? Well, the first thing that makes that work is that throughout this thread, you're talking about a common commodity, the kilowatt hour that gets delivered. So that every time you're trading and adjusting, you're adjusting and trading in the same thing. You don't want to start at 20 years out, and then you get to three years out, and suddenly you're talking about a different thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, in a market-oriented design, you're depending on having a multiplicity of actors participating in the market that gives you information about what's valuable and what's not valuable. How much is it worth to generate at 4 p.m. versus 2 p.m. or in July versus February and so on. Mm -hmm. And the idea is nobody's got perfect information. The market collects that information by having a number of transactions that settle on a price. But that's really dependent on people interacting in a kind of voluntary way. If you force people to buy 10 years out, and then they have to buy again a day out, they're making very different kinds of decisions. Right. Whereas if they're 10 years out, they're making a guess on their end as to why is it worth it locking into a contract now versus later? What are the pros and cons? And so there's an equilibrium, a balance that happens between the various markets in the cascade that's very dependent on this voluntary structure. Hmm. And then finally, the third principle 
is about equal access, non-discriminatory, transparent, and liquid. Now, this isn't just bringing a kindergarten mindset where we need to be fair to the table. These markets really depend on bringing in the wisdom of the crowd, bringing in a lot of different actors and players, and being aware of what other people are doing. If you start segregating and siloing the information, then that information sharing is not happening, and that market can't do a good job of basically bringing up a price that's reflective of the broad realities in the context. So the three of those together, which I think would not offend any normal economist, are quite important in making the cascade work, but they don't actually exist in the systems today. Okay, so just to quickly review then, we've got these three principles that there's first this common element of kilowatt hours is what's being traded. Second is everybody's participating in this market in a voluntary fashion and making their own decisions about what makes sense to them for these various durations of purchasing. And then the third is that these markets should be equal access. Everybody should have the same access to the same information and the markets should be transparent and they should be liquid so that you get good price discovery. So how do these three principles work in the multiplicity of power markets that we have? Because we actually have power markets with very different designs operating in the U.S. Yeah. So I like to think of the U.S. today as in kind of three broad categories of market. There's an energy-only market, which is basically Texas. There are capacity market constructs that we see in the Northeast, so PJM, NISO, and ISO New England. And then there's these hybrid markets, like in the Midwest, SPP and MISO, and in the West, the California ISO. So let me go through them one at a time. So I would say Texas, the darling of many energy economists, is probably the closest to embodying this cascade that I'm talking about, but no market is perfect. And we will discuss probably Texas later in the context of, of Winter Storm Uri. But it's interesting to me that a state that is so pro oil and gas and, and really not so excited about green is deploying just as many, if not more, wind and solar than California, which ostensibly is the bluest of states and wants to be better than everybody else in the class. And I think a lot of that comes down to the efficiency of their market design, hmm. which hopefully they won't blow up in an effort to support oil and gas. Yeah. <laughs> and then second, you have the energy markets, the mandatory capacity markets. So these markets have done a really great job at working on equal access, transparency, liquidity, and I think they can be proud of that. But where they tend to fail is in the other principle, voluntary and commodity. So voluntary participation in the capacity markets is not voluntary. Mm. Okay, so that you're told that you have to participate in this part of capacity. Now, there's lots of things that are not voluntary. You pay into transmission, black start, all kinds of ancillary services. But the point is capacity markets represent a significant part of the revenue going through these energy markets. So the fact that this is not a voluntary decision on the part of the loads is problematic for this energy cascade. And effectively, what it does is creates this new product called capacity that's not really directly tied to energy or energy provision. And so it means that you're doing your risk management now through two sets of commodities, the energy commodity and this capacity commodity. And in the past, maybe that wasn't so much of a problem, but as the resources become more and more heterogeneous today, 
it's creating more and more issues. Yeah, and just to clarify, what we mean when we say capacity markets is basically that these generators are guaranteeing to the market that they will be available to generate on demand for a certain period of time and at a certain price. Exactly. Okay. And what kind of markets exemplify this this type that you're talking about now, this energy market with a mandatory capacity market? Well, probably the poster boy would be PJM. Okay. The biggest market yeah. in North America. Okay. And then finally, the hybrid markets are a little harder to get your head around. Let's talk about SPP and MISO. MISO actually has some capacity market element to it, but really the resource adequacy problem is done at kind of a state level. And a lot of the participants in those markets are actually monopoly utilities that have guaranteed return on their assets, their generation assets. Mm -hmm. And so each state looks at their capacity needs in their own way, and is very reluctant to lean on the overall system. And so MISO is pretty well covered in terms of capacity, maybe overcovered. And then in California, we don't have the vertically integrated utilities in theory, but they still do a lot of the procurement. But that procurement's been moving to the CCAs. I understand you talked about that in one of your previous shows. So that's complicated, the issue. And then the way that they are looking at planning in the kind of intermediate part of the cascade is through something called resource adequacy credits or accreditation. And that's become more and more complicated. So they split it into local RA, flex RA, system RA, and now we've got a proposal from Pacific Gas and Electric where we're going to have time of day and split the resource adequacy into multiple parts of the day and different seasons and so on and so on. So it's becoming more and more complex an instrument. And again, really interfering with the free flow of the energy market cascade. And one real problem with that that energy economist Frank Wolex really pointed out, I thought in a very clever way, is California depends a lot on imports from its neighbors to manage its resource adequacy. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to go through the kind of complicated scheme California is putting forward and then try to impose that scheme on your neighbors. So it's hard to sign up resources outside of the state to be a part of that. And in that sense, it's almost the diametric opposite of the ERCOT market in Texas, because there there's almost no trade with other grids. It has to be self-contained. Yeah. ERCOT has to be self-contained, which they really suffered for. Yeah. And California really works with the other grids, but it's really more of an energy-only market type structure in that trade. And so you're basically trying to have both that structure and this RA structure working together at the same time. And that creates a lot of complexity. That's not great. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got these three different kinds of markets broadly grouped here. We've got your energy-only markets, your energy markets with mandatory capacity markets, and then these, what you call the monopoly competitive hybrids, where you've got some competitive generation and then some state-regulated monopolies that have captive customers and potentially own their own generation. So it's not exactly obvious how these principles of market design flow through all these different kinds of market constructs, I guess I should call them, particularly where price discovery is concerned, which is kind of the main issue that I want to talk about today. For example, as you were just saying, because of the complexity in the California market known as CAISO, the utilities are 
reluctant to enter into long-term contracts now, given the uncertainty on how many customers they'll need to serve, because there's been this ongoing, what they call load departure, where customers are basically leaving the direct relationship that they had with the major IOUs in California, and instead they're buying their power through these other entities, these CCAs that we talked about in episode 79 with Samuel Golding. And then conversely, there's these other vertically integrated utilities that are fully regulated, that might own their generation, that in many ways are not observing market principles. For example, as we discussed in episode 113 with Joe Daniel, you've got some of these generators that are actually dispatching their coal plants to produce power at a loss because they can. (laughs) And that's another way of distorting market prices. And then on top of all of this other stuff, particularly in MISO and PJM, I think we've got other generators, particularly coal and nuclear plants that have found themselves sort of upside down economically over the past couple of years and have been granted essentially out-of-market payments to keep them operating. And so there's all these different ways, depending on which kind of market construct you're in, that pure and clean price discovery is distorted. So as we contemplate the pros and cons of these different market designs, I keep thinking back to your comment from episode 64, where you said the only good capacity market is a dead capacity market. And you were kind of emphasizing some of the virtues of the Texas energy only market, because it is purer in the sense of market design. But of course, as you mentioned a moment ago, this year we got a fresh reminder that ERCOT has its own vulnerabilities. I mean, the February freeze and blackout that Texas experienced, as we discussed in episode 145 on that topic, made it really clear that there were multiple failures that led to the blackout. And really, market design was just one of them. Certainly, if Texas's generators had actually implemented some of the existing recommendations about weatherproofing various pieces of equipment and so on. Perhaps there wouldn't have been quite the cascading failures that happened in February. But isn't there still a question about whether ERCOT really is a well-run market and whether energy-only markets are really able to procure adequate long-term resources to ensure reliability and deal with the kinds of real-world long tail outcomes that we just saw in Texas and actually in California as well. Yeah, well, that's a really good question, Chris. So let's talk about Texas. So I can honestly say I've been a big fan of the Texas market for a while now. And so the events of February last year really caused me to reconsider. I mean, you have to be a complete egomaniac not to. Yeah. And so what lessons did I take when it comes to market design about what happened in Texas? For sure, there's problems with the gas supply, the housing stock could have been more resilient, and blah, blah, blah. But what I'm trying to get people to understand here is that if you want to think about markets, you need to think about the whole cascade, the whole procurement process down to real time. There's connective tissue there and what makes for a healthy market. And so I come to two conclusions. One, having healthy markets probably not enough to get resource adequacy. There's just a number of possible market failures that can get in the way and and kind of asymmetries in incentives and so on. Now, you can improve the market design so that your starting point for thinking about resource adequacy is is a lot closer to what you need and you need less intervention. Because the problem is with a bad market cascade and market design elements are creating conflicting signals, the problem just becomes harder. 
So what can we say went wrong in Texas? So I wrote a piece about Texas a few months ago. And one of the things I pointed out, just kind of analyzing the data, is well, there was a lot of money to be made if your wind farm didn't freeze up or your gas plant was ready. And so why didn't people invest in order to prevent that? And the simple answer is it's hard to understand exactly what's going on with various investors' minds and so on, but this is an event that was seen as something that could happen only every 10 years and so on. It's hard to put a lot of money down every year to maintain an extra stuff on your equipment and so on on the off chance that some big payoff will happen. You know, human psychology just has a hard time with that. Mm-hmm. And so somebody say, okay, well, this is a perfect example of why you need capacity markets. But capacity markets are actually very focused on kind of medium-term procurement two, three years out. So they're not really adapted to a one in 10 event, though hopefully it stays a one in 10 event and doesn't become like a one in five with climate change. Or something. <laughs> and it's unclear that whoever was in charge of a capacity market in Texas would have anticipated this situation the weather event, the lack of gas fuel availability in a major gas-producing state, the freezing up of power plants, and so on. You anticipate these things more in ISO New England or PJM. So after the polar vertex, they put in rules and incentives that made people put in dual fuel and so on. But in Texas, it's hard to see that anybody would have been willing to pony up the money for that. Yeah. So I don't think that a capacity market would necessarily have fixed the problem, and it would have introduced all kinds of other problems. But there's still the remaining question, well, why weren't people investing? And at the end of the day, from a generator's point of view, the ability to make money is great, and losing an opportunity to make money is not so great, but it's not a huge problem. I mean, it's a big problem if you had commitments, if you were supposed to supply that power and you didn't. So that was a problem for some generators. But it's really an issue on the delivery side, on the customer. It's a real problem if you can't deliver to your customer the power that you promised. And it's a little unfair in my mind that the customers who got curtailed didn't get paid for it. Mm-hmm. And theoretically, the value of lost load is $9,000 a megawatt hour, and that's in the price. And I have a long-time contract with you, Chris Nelder, to supply you as much power as you want at, I don't know, 60 bucks a megawatt hour. And I don't. Then shouldn't I be paying you the difference? Well, in fact, that's a point that Lorenzo Christoph made in episode 150, that curtailment, as he put it, is actually a grid service, and customers should be compensated for providing that service. Right. So that point aside, if I started talking that way to retailers, they would already be freaking out because a whole bunch of them went bankrupt. Yeah. They really got squeezed. But why did they really get squeezed? Because they do some amount of hedging. Right. So in case they end up having to buy more power than they need, but they don't do like a huge amount. In the sense that many of these retailers, like one of the biggest ones, NRG, showed that its customer residential demand went up by 200%. So they're not expecting double demand. No, they're not hedged for that. This was a a double squeeze. It was a failure in the generation side and a huge increase in demand from the housing stock. Right. And so their hedging scheme is inadequate. And so then the question is, why is that? Well, partially it's expensive to have that hedging scheme in place. It's expensive to buy insurance for something that could happen only every 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so it's tempting not to, especially if you're in a competition with a lot of other retailers and the others aren't doing it. And so it seems to me a situation kind of like car insurance, where most people, if left to their own devices, would not buy liability insurance 
because most of the time you're not getting into accidents and and harming people or killing people and so it's not something you feel like putting money out of your pocket every month but then if it happens you might not be able to pay all those bills and then who pays those people so most states require you to at least be covered for the damage you do to other people so we see in other arenas of life requiring people to be prudent is important so I think probably one way to tinker around this energy cascade would be around requiring a form of insurance that maybe a lot of retailers would either not be inclined to do or aren't at the luxury to do because they're in competition with other retailers who might then themselves not buy the insurance. And so I think the closest thing to a scheme like that for modifying energy markets is one that's been put forward by Professor Frank Wolak at Stanford in the context of California's RA program. Unfortunately, I think it was a bit complicated for most people's liking, so I don't know that it got the airing it deserved. Mm. But in my mind, if you wanted to kind of tinker around these energy markets, that would be a good way to do it. So is this basically like a new product here, or is it just a way of changing the way the existing products work? Well, see, what I like about Professor Wallach's proposal is it's really working around those principles that I give. The fundamental commodity is not capacity, it's energy. So his idea is really to require people to have the energy on hand to sell to their clients and to plan to be able to have that energy on hand. In Germany, they have similar kind of retailer requirements. I don't know exactly how they work. In Australia, they have a retailer reliability obligation where if the system operator foresees a period where the the combination of everybody's purchase decisions isn't going to give enough, then they kind of put an obligation on the retailers to be covered. But the key here in all these instances is to really focus on the megawatt hour and not the megawatt. Mm-hmm. And I think in the case of ERCOT, a lot of this complexity or the way that these other mechanisms propose to address that complexity is currently being handled just by ERCOT's administration. I mean, the board just simply said, jam up the wholesale price to the market cap, which is like whatever it was. 9,000. 9,000, okay. And that'll solve the problem. And they were doing that sort of on the fly in the midst of the, the tragic situation that they were in. Clearly, there's a limit to how much people can really be expected to make the right decisions under a crisis situation like that. And I think it does argue that if these pricing issues are to be addressed adequately, especially given these kind of long tail events like what happened in February, they probably shouldn't be left up to administrators having to make those decisions on the fly. Well, exactly. I mean, again, back to the cascade. The signal needs to be connected properly all the way up the cascade. Mm-hmm. You cannot squeeze water out of a stone, right? Mm-hmm. So you can jack up the price to whatever you want. If your objective is to get more generation out and they can't get fuel or their machines aren't working, good luck. I mean, theoretically, you have an infinite potential on the demand side because you can always reduce what you consume. But unfortunately, the demand side of the equation is not functioning very well in Texas. And so there really wasn't a mechanism to get people to consume less in order to preserve the system. So you have this right. situation where a number of people had all the electricity they wanted and a bunch of other people were cut off. Right. Whereas if a number of people were, say, to reduce their thermostats from 72 to 60, well, they would have been really cold in their houses, but they could have put a sweater on and their pipes wouldn't have burst and it wouldn't have been endangering. Maybe the set point 65, I don't know. Where do you put it so that everybody's sharing the pain in a way that doesn't cause a lot of damage? 
Or for that matter, how do you deal with a collective action problem like that in a culture like Texas, <laughs> which is sort of antithetical to that sort of idea. Now, I have put proposals forward in front of the public utility of Texas, and one of them would be to actually put more stringent requirements on their retailers. Hmm. Say, look, it's your job to be in a position to supply the energy when things are tight, and so it's your job to go find the resources and pay for them that are going to get you out of a bind, be that on the generation side or on the demand side. Right. You know, right now, they don't really have that incentive to manage that risk. Right. Okay, so... Moving on from Texas, I mean, the California market has also demonstrated some serious deficiencies this year. There was the ongoing necessity of public safety power outages to avoid sparking wildfires. So that's where they're basically turning off power to certain transmission lines that they feel like might be affected by a wildfire or could spark a wildfire. There's a severely stressed system on very hot days, which has necessitated load shedding. So they're just basically turning consumers off because they can't deliver as much power as everybody needs. And then most recently, there was this emergency procurement of some gas-fired peaking capacity that the regulator ordered to maintain reliability. But as you say, it's an enormously complex market and a regulatory environment, which in my mind more closely resembles a patchwork quilt at this point than a clean market design based on the first principles like you've laid out. You know, I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of conversations with energy journalists and market watchers lately who are really wondering if Kaiso can maintain a functioning grid while also cleaning up its grid and transitioning to more distributed and variable renewable resources and shutting down the 2.2 gigawatt Diablo Canyon nuclear plant in 2024. I mean, this is a very tall order, and there's a lot of different actors involved between Kaiso, which operates the wholesale market, the CPUC, the regulator, the California Energy Commission, which actually is kind of under the governor's office, and then we've got all these CCAs, which to some degree are autonomous entities, as well as the IOUs. I mean, it's a very complex situation in terms of who's making what decisions. And I think a lot of us are wondering how California is going to navigate the next few years, especially as regards resource procurement. So is the California market even an example we should be thinking about for the rest of the country, or is it so unique that it really just stands alone? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. When Hurricane Ida slammed into the U.S. Gulf Coast on August 29th, it not only did massive damage to large portions of Louisiana and Mississippi, it also took down the entire power grid of New Orleans Parish. All of New Orleans lost power after its monopoly utility, Entergy, suffered what it called catastrophic transmission damage, as all eight of the transmission lines serving the area failed, including a major transmission line that crumbled into the Mississippi River. Nearly 800,000 customers, representing millions of people, were left without power in blistering heat without air conditioning and nowhere to store fresh food for at least a week. As of this writing, some customers are still not expected to have it restored until a full month after the hurricane struck. Had Entergy focused on building resilient local distributed clean power from the ground up, using technologies like rooftop solar and microgrids, as the New Orleans-based profit Alliance for Affordable Energy had proposed in 2016, many customers would have been able to rely on their own power generation in the aftermath of the storm. Rooftop solar systems generally survived Hurricane Ida intact, while neighboring houses had their their roofs blown off, and those who had battery storage with their rooftop solar systems not only never lost power, they were able to provide some power for their neighbors for critical needs like charging cell phones. Instead, Entergy wanted to build a 128-megawatt natural gas plant that was supposed to be able to weather hurricanes and provide black start capacity if the grid went down. The Alliance for Affordable Energy warned that the gas plant would be at risk of flooding or damage to transmission lines, and instead proposed building distributed microgrids with solar, batteries, and backup generation. Entergy fought back, and the New Orleans City Council, which regulates the utility, approved the gas-fired power plant instead of the distributed energy proposal. As the Alliance for Affordable Energy predicted, when Hurricane Ida knocked out the transmission lines connecting the city to the larger regional grid, the new gas plant could not perform the black start functions that Entergy said it could. More than two days later, Entergy was able to restart the gas plant and connect it to parts of New Orleans, but the majority of the city remained without electricity. According to the Energy and Policy Institute, Entergy has consistently opposed efforts to reduce its dependence on oil and gas and try to make the grid more resilient. Instead, it has lobbied to expand the use of natural gas, tried to stop the spread of distributed solar, and even hired actors to show up at a 2018 city council vote to support the new gas plant over widespread local opposition, for which they paid a minor fine. The utility has also consistently fought federal climate regulations. Now, the New Orleans City Council has passed a package of measures designed to investigate Entergy's decisions before and during Hurricane Ida, and to study options for severing the city's ties with the company, including possibly converting the system to a municipal utility. For more on how microgrids and distributed solar can help make power grids more resilient to climate-related natural disasters, listen to episode 150. Item 2. On September 15th, Governor Pritzker of Illinois signed a major energy bill that will overhaul Illinois' energy sector and make the state the first in the Midwest to commit to net-zero carbon emissions by 2050. The bill will provide nearly $700 million over five years to save... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.